now. It's great. I love those songs. So, so Jess is going to be in conversation with Sean Vestal. So, so but uh, we, we always like to do a little video. So, so l- l- let's, let's, let's learn about Jess. I've ventured far away to New York and the Zero, Italy and Hollywood and beautiful ruins, but I always find myself coming back to Spokane. This is where Jess Walter started, graduating from Eastern Washington University and starting at the Spokesman Review in 1987. Walter was a finalist for the 1992 Pulitzer Prize as part of a team covering the shootout and standoff at Ruby Ridge. The author of seven novels, Walter has been named a finalist for the National Book Award, winner of the Edgar Allan Poe Award, along with several other honors. Beautiful Ruins became a number one bestseller. We Live in Water makes President Obama's must-read list in 2019. And The Cold Millions wins the 2020 Washington State Book Award. The Angel of Rome is Walter's second collection of short stories. It's almost full circle including two stories that were originally published in the Spokesman Review. Spokesman Review columnist Sean Vestal leads tonight's conversation. Please welcome Jess Walter to the Northwest Passages stage. Kind of dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little turnout you I got know. here. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Mostly relatives, but <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm always excited for a new book from you, and uh, I am a particular fan of short stories. And I know that you've written many short, many more short stories than are in this book. And I'm just curious, what was the path for deciding to do a book of stories? How do you choose among your stories? How did that happen? Yeah, it was it was kind of a funny process. I I think I counted f- between 40 and 50 stories that I'd written between 2013 and now, um, most of them published. Uh, and so when I went through, I thought there would be like 30 really good ones, and there were exactly 17. So the rest were <laughs> um, utter crap. So uh, going from 17 to 12 was kind of hard, um, and. I looked at places where I was repeating themes. Sometimes I think I'm so funny and clever that a story is nothing but funny and clever. And those are the hardest stories for me to let go of because I just want, you know, I want everyone to see how funny and clever I am. And um, (laughs) so my, I think I got it down to 14 and my uh, great editor, Jennifer Barth at Harper, said, I think maybe a couple more of these have to go. And I said, not the funny, clever ones. And uh, she said, you mean the stupid ones? Yes. Um, um, and then, you know, I had the, like a story from Esquire and another one from uh, Harper's. And if someone would have told me as like a 25-year-old that I would 
not, I would have a story in Esquire and Harper's and not include it in my collection. I would have thought I was nuts, but um, they were similar to other stories. So, so in the end, you know, came together in this way that felt, you know, almost like it, that's how it was supposed to fit, you know. You know, there's such great variety in terms of where they are, what kind of characters uh, are in them, what happens in the stories. Do you see a, a through line, a theme that kind of unites them? Yeah, it, and it sort of surprised me, honestly, because I think of myself as, uh, you know, someone who likes to plumb darkness, and, uh, but I kept coming across these dark situations that led to moments of hope and these moments of connection between characters that I found surprising. And, you know, I look back on those years from 2013 to now, and you know, losing a close friend and having my father suffer from dementia. I could see different themes. I could, my, you know, uh, our mother passed away of cancer and cancer always works its way. And I could see these, these themes, but in almost all of the stories that I ended up choosing, um, there was this surprising figure like Mr. Voice in the first story. Um, these, and I think I was finding that I found such connection in my family and in my friends and in, you know, that even during a hard, you know, hard several years, personally and politically for a lot of people, I think I was looking for those places that you felt some refuge and those were the stories that kind of made it. Uh, you and I talked about it once and you had talked about the hope, the, the sort of the lifting of hope in some of the stories and I had just read the book and I had read the stories before and I it wasn't my initial thought about them. I don't mean that I don't think no, they were hopeful, yeah. but that the hope is kind of in the face of yeah. difficulty, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and I, I don't think I'm a sentimental writer, certainly. I remember a reading one time, uh, a woman came up to me and she said, I just read your whole book, Citizen Vince. Why would I read a whole book and not get a happy ending? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And um, so I don't want to confuse that moment of hope with happy endings, um, massage or otherwise. Because um, uh, that, that's up to you if you read the book. I mean, the author photo's good, but not that good. Um, but I, um, and so it's not, it's not that you're writing toward a point of, you know, of the ending, you know, making you feel like there are no problems in the world. It's more um, just that gesture toward um, completing the movement of the story that, um, you know, that makes you, you know, see that the, maybe you're not alone or that, um, you know, that someone surprises you in a way. And those are the kinds of stories that I found myself really res writing and responding to when I put the collection together. A lot of surprise, a lot of characters surprised me. Yeah. People always say, do you plan the stories out? And so I'll, I'll, I'll often be like, oh, that waiter's being so nice to them, and kind of, you know, <laughs> get choked up the, over simple acts of kindness, so. Um, so the title story was written to, a, to appear initially as an audio book or an audio yeah. thing. What, what was the process of doing that like? Was it different? from writing it for print? I feel sort of guilty when I describe it now because I was telling someone, you know, you should always like find a great 
um, award-winning actor to read your story out loud and then fly to New York and rent a place and then um, ha have him table read it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, every writer should do that. You should so, teach that. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and then fly to Italy for the main story. Um, but yeah, I had met Eduardo Ballerini when he did this amazing narration of Beautiful Ruins and continues to be my favorite audiobook of, of my books. And he brought something to it that um, made me, that was different than, was it, than, than the novel itself. And so we'd always talked about how audiobooks are a little bit of an afterthought. And we said, what if we wrote a story that was meant to be read aloud? And so that was really the genesis. He had, for a while, studied Latin in um, Tristevere in Rome, my favorite neighborhood in Rome. And so we just started talking about that. And um, uh, Eduardo is the son of uh, a famous Italian poet and uh, a very literary family, lived in New York. So it wasn't really a background I could imagine. So it was really just that Latin class that was the starting point. Um, but I wrote about half the story and then um, happened to be in New York. And so he table read it and uh, almost like having a play or a movie screenplay table read, you could hear the characters. And the story just changed completely hearing him read it. Uh, and then I would give little challenges, you know, like, oh, let's see him do this accent. And what if there's an officious British person in the class? And, um, you know, it became like, can I, can I, you know, break Eduardo's tongue, you know, by, um, um, but he's, you know, he's so gifted and he brought so much to all the different characters. When he, he read it one last time, um, and we, we would also sort of cast it. We would, he would say, who do you think Ronnie Tower, this American actor, should sound like? And first he did him, he did the character sort of like a 1940s gangster, you know, um, super, super fast talking. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't think that's him. And finally, I just wrote him and said, it's um, Harrison Ford. And, um, and he's like, oh, I got it. And from that moment on, um, every time he just had that Harrison Ford growl, you know, and I'd be like, oh, you, that's it, perfect. So, yeah, so that was really fun talking about the characters that way. Um, uh, and then in the end, though, I'm a little bit of a tyrant, and so, you know, the story, I still have to write the whole thing. Eduardo g gave me some terrific notes, but I don't let anyone near the keyboard because um, uh, that's the, I'm super controlling when I'm sure, there. Sure. Uh, in the story, Fran's friend has cancer. There's a, without saying too much about it, there's a writer that kind of listens in on a conversation and, uh, and it maybe isn't the most wise or admirable character in that story. And I, I just wanted to ask you about that, about the relationship between life and fiction and listening yeah. into life a little bit. Um, yeah, it's funny, my um, wonderful family is here, my beautiful wife, Anne, and uh, my daughter, Brooklyn, her husband, Mickey, my sister, Christy, her husband, Al, my brother, Ralph. I have 11 cousins, so hold your applause. No, I'm not gonna name. <laughs> not gonna go into the cousins, sorry, Brian. Um, uh, but they will tell you that little facts of our life find their way into stories all the time. And I play dumb every time. I'm like, well, that's not our house, you know? And it's like, that's totally our house. And, um, uh, and so that, that process, I, I mean, I, I honestly don't ever see the original 
um, impetus for the story. As soon as I start creating, it really disappears for me. I don't, um, you know, I don't think that way. But in that story, there's someone doing what I used to do when I wanted to learn to write dialogues, sitting in a restaurant, recording the way people speak. And I really just wanted to get the patterns of speech down. And, um, and I started thinking about the, the, the kind of arrogance of that and the, uh, um, just what sort of flawed thinking it is that by overhearing a conversation you can create a whole human being. Um, and then I do what I often do when I'm writing a short story, which is to reverse polarity, to reverse the point of view. So instead of writing from the point of view of someone who used to sit in a restaurant, I wrote from the point of view of someone who notices that there's um, some jackass sitting there writing everything they say in a journal. And he grabs the journal. And again, it's when you don't plan what's going to happen in a story, it's kind of thrilling, you know. And, and so I think I, it, it's a little bit of a meta story, I guess. Um, and I, I liked it being early in the book to just remind you these are stories, you know. I, one, of, one of the greatest things is when people come up to me and say, you know, what happened to Pasquale? What's Vince doing? And I'll have to say, they were just letters that I typed, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, and so I love sort of playing with that illusion. Um, and, that, and so I think it was, a, it was a really fun story to write, yeah. and, but different, I think, than most of the other stories in the collection. Um, a, a couple of the stories begin in the Summer Stories Project, yeah. which is coming up again pretty soon here in the Spokesman on Sundays. Um, how did you change and, you know, how did you grow those after that initial uh, publication? Yeah, um, I, I take a lot of writing prompts. Um, uh, there's a great event here. If, if For those of you who haven't been, uh, Get Lit um, has an event called Pie and Whiskey in which writers have to write a story with either pie or whiskey in it. And I still remember my editor saying, there's a lot of whiskey drinking in these stories. <laughs> and um, so many of the stories started as with the germ of something from pie and whiskey. Or I write stories for Humanities Washington's Bedtime Stories, which is a terrific fundraiser you should go to. And then the Spokesman Review Summer Series. I'm, I was so proud to see everything that my old newspaper is doing. Even though my brother's sports section wormed its way into my event. Um, <laughs> but uh, you should know that the genius Ralph Walter... Um, won that Grand Slam, and, and uh, he might have been a little hungover when he picked up the award, uh, um, <laughs> not to tell tales, but, um, uh, boy, I forgot what, oh, anyway, to, to, have, to have, uh, my, have my newspaper run original fiction is just so great, and so I, I love getting to, to turn those stories in, but it's a very small word limit. I think it's 2,000 words, yeah. 2,200. Um, and sometimes that's enough to tell a full story. Um, one of the things that with, with story collections that I like to do is vary the length. And so um, I did want some shorter stories in there. But when I look back, for instance, the story I'm going to read tonight, I'm going to read a slightly abbreviated version. But it ran in the, in the uh, spokesman. And, and I just felt like I needed to know a little bit more about those characters. And that's usually the place where the story expands, is um, knowing those people a little more, just kind of delving deeper inside. And I think with both of the stories, that's what I wanted to know. Um, I saw Carolyn Lamberson, who um, does such a great job editing that section, and she said the newspaper versions are better. So um, <laughs> uh, she will never be getting a story from me again. <laughs> 
Yeah, she will. Yeah, how we do it on time? I'm easy. Uh, you know, I might just ask you, uh, what, who were some of your favorite short story writers and some of your favorite short stories or books of stories? Yeah, I think, you know, writers love short stories. It's the form that we often start with. It's the form we teach. Um, you know, you can't really, in a, in a class, teach someone to write a novel. I don't think anyone knows how to write a novel. Um, and so, uh, you know, you and I talked about Tobias Wolf, who I had the good fortune of interviewing a few times. He's one of my favorite short story writers. And he said this great thing that he writes short stories can you, can, because you can approach perfection. Every novel is a hot mess. Every novelist will tell you that they, they're barely held together with um, chewing gum and tape. And, but short stories, you can find an, an almost perfect moment um, and describe it in such a way that um, it's almost like it, the thing dissolves itself in its own heat, like water hitting a stove or something. And that feeling when a story just it kind of explodes in you is my favorite. Alice Munro, of course, is amazing at that. Um, Edward P. Jones is one of my favorite story writers. Mary Gateskill, um, uh, there's so many. I, I love your stories, actually. Uh, oh, I, teach, I teach one of your short, short stories. So, um, besides, besides being a great columnist, Sean is a novelist and short story writer, too. So, yeah, the tallest one on the stage, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So. Close. Yeah. I uh, quickly, when I teach, I teach uh, what ran as a short story from Cold Millions, the oh, yeah. Plants Fairies oh, section. Oh yeah. Yeah. And one of my pieces of advice I give to young writers is uh, throw something off the raft. Because <laughs> a horse goes off. The, anyway, yeah. you're stuck when yeah. something goes off the raft and you're going throw anyway. something off the raft. Um, Can I, if I steal that from you, am I stealing from me? Yeah. <laughs> is that a double plagiarism? I'm yeah. not sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, a statistical abstract in yeah. my hometown, Spokane, Washington, about your relationship to Spokane and that, how that changed and evolved as the city changed. It's been a number of yeah. years now, and I wonder, I don't know, would you add to that almanac? Or, uh, not almanac, but... Uh, the abstract? Yeah, yeah, abstract, or change it? Into uh, it? Yeah. Being in a newspaper, you would get what was called a statistical abstract. The Department of Agriculture would send you, and it was really just pages and pages of statistics. And when you're writing short stories, you're always kind of looking for an innovative form. And um, But I wrote that in 2006, and I, I was talking about my how... I sometimes will cling to ideas just because they're funny. And I was really just writing to get to number six in my list, which was Spokane has the highest per capita number of adult men riding uh, BMX bikes in the entire country. And, um, and next to Beautiful Ruins, that is the line that I get the most. I mean, for years, people would send me pictures of guys with their... Uh, knees up around their ears riding uh, BMX bikes and I would get them from Helsinki and from I mean I don't know how that story made such rounds but but I wrote it in 2006 and um, and it was published in 2008 and it was really the under the underside of it was really about loving a city that is a little gritty that is a little hard um, that is the place that you're from and my own realization that not liking Spokane was a kind of horrible snobbery that I didn't like the place because it was full of um, undereducated um, unsophisticated white people and it's like hello mirror um, 
it's like, you know, you, it was a kind of self-loathing that I was practicing. And people seem to get that in every city in America when they read that piece, except Seattle. <laughs> um, where, where somehow they're like, um, you know, are, are you still there? And, um, and then someone wrote about it uh, and said that I, I live in my hometown, and somehow it became that I lived in my parents' basement still. And so um, I, I decided I would never read from that book from We Live in Water in Seattle because I would just get so angry at the crowd. And um, uh, But if, if I were to update it, I mean, I, it's, to me, we haven't really talked about the crushing blow that the Lime Scooters had made to the children's BMX bike industry. Um, <laughs> Because now you get a DUI, you just hop on one of those scooters and run me down on the Centennial Trail. Right. You don't even need to steal a kid's bike anymore. So right. it has to have decimated it. Um, <laughs> I would probably also, I mean, Spokane is such a, a richer place um, since 2006. It just is. Um, better food and music and art and, um, you know, so many amazing writers working here. Uh, and, and maybe I, part of it was me, me not appreciating as much as I, as I should have, but I still love that it's gritty. I still love that our dive bars are still dive bars. Um, I still love that, uh, I loved until a few years ago before we all got Zillow drunk, that you, anyone could afford a house, you know, um, that a teacher could afford a house. I, I worry that, um, you know, that with this, this, increase in real estate that we're going to lose something really valuable that I came to appreciate by writing that piece. Yeah. I think that appeared at a moment when a lot of people were trying, were maybe rethinking their attitude, younger people I mean, about Spokane. I think it was important in some ways for yeah. a lot of people to be, um, to get rid of this old loathing yeah. toward the town. Anyway. Yeah. I still, I, people will come up to me and say, thank you for staying, and I almost cry every time. Yeah. It's like, because I don't want to stay. I want to go, but now I have to stay. <laughs> no, I do. New York no, I do City. want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> now I can't leave for another three weeks. So. Well, let me ask you just one more before you read. Yeah. Uh, I know you've read a lot of Shakespeare in the last 10 years. Some of us have been doing that. And uh, we're in a, uh, this is going to really be a turn on. We're in a Shakespeare reading club <laughs> where we just read the plays over and over. And some people and are like, do you act them out? I'm like, no, we just read them. So, yeah. uh, I'm curious, how does that make its way into your writing? Or how does it, what do you think? What yeah. effect might that have had on you? My, my, um, I, I mean, I love those plays, and they're, every time I read them, I think we've made such incredible um, uh, progress in technology in all these certain ways, but we don't know human nature any better than that writer did. Um, there's this triangle of desire in every play, uh, Macbeth wants to be king, but he doesn't want this. And, and in, in, that trial, in that triangle of want is all of human nature, all of the things that we do to destroy ourselves. And every time I read one, um, I, I, the New York Times is interviewing me, and I, I can't believe I said this. It's one of those things that's probably going to haunt me, but um, I keep waiting for an English teacher to beat me to death with a big omnibus for saying this. But I said, there, there's so much about life that 
I couldn't have appreciated as a high school or college student until I'd lost people, until I'd fallen in love, until I'd had children. And to make 18-year-olds read Shakespeare is like making toddlers watch porn. <laughs> and the, the minute I said that, I was like, I should not have said that. And, um, and I thought, but maybe they won't use it. Oh, they'll use it. Uh, yeah, you knew that was going in. And I, and it's, because it sounded like I was saying, you should probably have your toddlers watch porn, you know? Uh, I know, it was terrible. So. My other favorite moment of the Shakespeare Club, we, were, we would meet at Zola and um, professors and writers and we would have our big Shakespeare omnibuses in front of us and we'd be, you know, declaring and yelling and talking and I went out to buy a round of drinks and um, the server said, that is the wildest Bible study I've ever seen. Crushed <laughs> <laughs> uh, me. And I said, what Bible study would show porn to toddlers? <laughs> Wrong, Missy. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, I think you should read. All right, I'm going to read a quick story. I'm so excited because I... It's been years since I got to go out and actually read, so, um, and I won't read for long, I promise. Um, I talked about stories being um, based on sort of... Um, you know, some aspects, I, I don't really write very autobiographically, but every once in a while a detail or two will come in. And my sister and I both worked at Gino's Pizza. Um, and uh, and this, is a, this is a story, but it's not, um, it's, uh, it's from the point of view of a woman. So even though um, you'll hear this voice, imagine that the main character is a woman. But it's not my sister, so. So much as she knows. Bef it's called Before You Blow. This was the summer you spent at the river, the summer of your first beer, first job, first love, the summer of 83, summer of Joey. You met him at Gino's fabulous pizza at the, at the end of your junior year of high school. Gino's was a fixture in the Gonzaga neighborhood, checkered tablecloths, candles in Chianti bottles, oregano red sauce splattered on overcooked pasta. All the Catholic families in Spokane went there, yours included, the kids for pizza and spumoni, the parents for rigatoni and chilled lambrusco. One night, your family was having dinner and the owner asked if you needed a summer job and the next thing you knew, you were bussing tables. You were fast and could carry four glasses of water in each hand. You felt like an adult. Then in July, one of the waitresses broke her wrist and you got promoted. And immediately, Joey began flirting with you through the kitchen pass-through window, as if when you were a busser, you had been too young to notice, but as a waitress, you were fair game. You could feel his eyes on you every time you spun a ticket on the order wheel. Lasagna, spaghetti with tips, small mushroom and sausage pizza. Got it, jeans, he'd say. The owner, Shirley, had recently allowed waitresses to dress more casually instead of buying uniforms from the food service catalog. So while the other women wore old polyester pants and hip pocket shirts, you got to wear jeans. Order up jeans, Joey would say, sliding a lasagna through the window. He worked Fridays and Saturday nights baking the comically big lasagnas, whose recipe he claimed was noodle sauce cheese, noodle sauce cheese, lather, rinse, repeat. 
You thought that was hilarious, but then everything Joey did that summer was hilarious. It felt like flirting, but you knew it could just be teasing. After all, he was at least four years older than you, an upperclassman at Gonzaga University, and what college senior wants to date a high school kid? Then, one day, you were counting tips, and you felt someone over your shoulder. You turned, and Joey smiled. Hey, Jeans, he said. Don't suppose I could get the phone number of that ass. <laughs> okay, then. It was to be love. That night, he pulled you into the walk-in and kissed you. Joey was 22, with a grown man's body, a series of squares all the way up to his block of brown hair. His eyes were green and arched, with a quality one might generously call mischievous. He was pre-law and already applying to law schools. Law school, your mother said, as if he'd just confided that he was a prince. Well, <laughs> she looked at your dad. Do you hear that, Mark? A lawyer. Your parents and brother had come to the restaurant the weekend after Joey kissed you, the hostess seating them at a foretop in your section. You explained to Joey that you weren't sure your parents would approve of you going out with a college boy, so he'd volunteered to bring two glasses of wine to the table and introduce himself, an old-fashioned move meant to score points with your dad. There was some small talk about Gonzaga. Joey, it was important that I, go to, that I go to a Catholic school. In his career plans, I hope to do more with the law than just make money. And finally, Joey gestured back to the kitchen. Well, I better get back to work. Then he bowed to your mother. I certainly see where your daughter gets her looks. Those are some strong genes. <laughs> and with that, he turned and winked, knowing what you would hear. A lawyer, your mother said again after Joy left. She looked at your dad, who raised that single eye of approval. What made you want to be a lawyer, you asked Joey that night. He shrugged. My dad's a lawyer. His dad's a lawyer. My first ancestor probably practiced cave law. <laughs> Joey's roommate, Patrick, was also pre-law and was also from the Bay Area. For California Catholics like them in the 1980s, Gonzaga was a last-ditch safety school. Get a minor in possession or flunk a class or two, and the parents might nix Santa Clara or San Francisco, don't even think about Stanford, and exile you to cold, sleepy Spokane. <laughs> there, the transplanted Californians whined about the lack of nightlife and trudged monastically through the snow, hoods up on their parkas. As Patrick used to say, I messed around and ended up here at Fuck Up State. It was shocking the way Joey and Patrick talked about your hometown. Not that you thought Spokane was anything special. Back then, you had nothing to compare it to. You'd never lived anywhere else, had never really been anywhere else. So the way they treated it, the dismissal, the condescension, the mockery, these were a revelation to you. Spokane was indeed cold, and it was surely remote, and yes, its downtown was sleepy, but Joey and Patrick were anything but monastic. They ran around like Butch and Sundance, charming their way out of Ds from professors and DUIs from cops. They got drunk almost every night, sometimes with the Jesuits. <laughs> they made impromptu road trips to Canada to buy cases of kokanee because that beer had higher alcohol content. They bought pot from the girlfriend of an English prof and speed from a biker who lived down the street. They bought booze for your high school friends and let you invite them to parties. You thought they were hilarious, sexy. They had pet names for everything, a language all their own. They called Gonzaga Gonzo U. 
and they called each other Fitz, Patrick Fitzgerald, and Mac, Joseph McCune. They called you Jeans. They treated the city like a playground or a college rental with no respect for windows, walls, drapes, curbs, carpets, speed, speed limits, property, daughters. To them, the word Spokane was a modifier that meant decadent fun. They didn't just get drunk, they got spo-drunk. They peed off the Monroe Street Bridge. <laughs> Joey was spo-hung over the next day. He puked in a neighbor's flower bed. Patrick got spo-horny that night. He asked out the 25-year-old checker from Safeway, Harmony. And that is how you ended up one night late that summer in Harmony's brown Ford Pinto. Patrick in the passenger seat, you and Joey pressed into the small back seat on either side of Harmony's kid, Morton. <laughs> Morton was maybe two, a pacifier bobbing in and out of his mouth, no car seat to be seen. Morton, you asked his mom, is that a family name? It's assault, Harmony said. <laughs> Everyone was drinking Schlitz, the cans with the big blue bull on them, because Patrick insisted malt liquor was classier than regular beer. You should call him Sportin', Joey said, like Morton from Spokane. I feel like that would limit his options, Harmony said. You drove around that way for a while, drinking beer and looking for something to do. Harmony asked what you did for a living. You didn't even consider telling her that you were still in high school. I work with Joey, you said. At Gino's, I love the salad there. What kind of dressing is that? Italian, I guess. Oh yeah, that makes sense, she said. <laughs> what could fill the hours between 5 p.m. and sunset on a summer day? You drove here, drove there, chattered inanely. You went to a thrift store and Patrick bought a trench coat. You got burgers and milkshakes. Sportin' sucked on french fries and everyone laughed. Someone suggested painting the graffitied railroad abutment, but you couldn't think of anything cool to paint. Sportin' sucked on his binky until he fell asleep. You'd been going out with Joey for three weeks by that time, and this was your second double date with Harmony and Patrick. You were surprised that Patrick would date a grocery store checker, especially one with a kid, and that's when you heard something that bothered you. Pat Patrick telling another friend of theirs, I like the lowered expectations of townies. That night, with the sun going down, Harmony drove her Pinto along Upriver Drive and parked near Boulder Beach. Dates often ended up at the river that summer, where you could wade and swim, fly from tire swings. That night, someone, Patrick maybe, suggested skinny dipping. You were nervous, but you didn't object, knowing that a vote would go three to one, sporting abstaining as he slept against your side in the back seat. <laughs> You were nervous because you and Joey had been progressing steadily that summer with each makeout session. Kissing, he did not kiss like a high school boy, to fondling those big meaty adult hands to, well, you knew what was next. You and a college boy were about to have sex. Crazy thing, love. Sometimes you just fall for a person, but sometimes you decide to love them. You set your reservations aside and you say, okay, this is the boy I'm going to love. This is the boy I'm going to lose my virginity to. This summer, right now, right here on this blanket next to this cold river. And when you decide that, well, he can do anything, say anything, and you will approve. 
He can say something like, you should call him Sportin, and you don't think, what an idiot. You think, that's hilarious, we should have sex. <laughs> Crazy thing, love. In the backseat of Harmony's car, you turned once more and looked into Joey's wry cocktail olive eyes. Yes, you told yourself. Then he reached across the sleeping toddler and put a hand on your thigh. What do you say, jeans? You think about that moment now, 30 years later, at home in Spokane to visit your ailing father, sitting in traffic on Division Street after you've happened to glance over and see, painted on a bus bench, those same green eyes settled in a bloated, balding face. Joseph J. McCune is now an attorney of law here in Spokane, a specialist in personal injury cases and DUIs, who apparently attracts his clients from bus bench advertising. Coincidentally or not, you also became a lawyer, graduating summa cum laude from Seattle University and in the top 10% of your law class at the University of Washington. You should probably thank Joseph J. McCune for giving you the idea of becoming a lawyer, or thank your parents for reacting the way they did when Joey said those two words, law and school, because now you work in San Diego as a corporate lawyer specializing in intellectual property rights. Most of your clients are tech companies. And while you feel a little bit guilty condescending, you can't quite help it. You've come to think of lawyers like Joseph J. McCune as bottom feeders, Joey's singular contribution to jurisprudence being the idea that one should not immediately consent to a breathalyzer from police after one has crashed one's car into a Taco Bell. <laughs> Call Joe before you blow his bus... <laughs> his, his bus bench advertises. Mom, snaps your daughter, would you go? The light changed like two days ago. <laughs> Coincidentally, Amber is at the very age, 17, that you were the summer you met Joey. And she is not happy being back in sleepy Spokane, visiting her ancient grandfather, who keeps staring at her septum ring like, well, there's a ring in his granddaughter's septum. <laughs> For the last year, you and your youngest have battled over nose rings, grades, curfews, and mostly over this hunk of idiocy named Kyle, whom Amber calls Mabu. <laughs> when you suggest that perhaps her boo might not raid the refrigerator every 20 minutes, or that her boo might write his own damn term paper, Amber, Amber cries out in the endless song of her people, when are you going to start treating me like an adult? <laughs> Mom, go! Horns are honking behind you, but you can't look away from this bus bench and from Joey's green eyes. Do you want to know when you become an adult? You finally ask your daughter. What? Amber is horrified. The way she gets when you, whenever you try to say something meaningful, or actually whenever any words come out of your mouth. <laughs> what are you saying? Seriously, Mom, are you having a stroke? Finally, you look from the bus bench to your daughter and you say, you become an adult the first time you see through love. And then, with your daughter fuming and the light turning yellow, you drive away from Joey's green eyes forever. That night, the four of you got out of the pinot quietly, hoping not to wake little Morton. 
Doors latched gently, Harmony nodded and looked back, still asleep, and you carried blankets toward the shoreline, you and Joey veering off slightly from Patrick and Harmony. You were shaking. It's cold out here, you said. We don't have to go in the water, Joey said. We can just lie down somewhere. I'll warm you up. You felt his hand on your waist. Even at dusk, you could sense those green eyes taking you in. You tried to muster courage. It's okay, you could do this. It's what adults did. They had sex. What, are you going to be a virgin forever? Stop shaking. It's Joey, hilarious Joey. Who better to then, in your peripheral vision, something you couldn't quite put together? You turned back. On the hill behind you, the pinot was creeping forward slowly <laughs> toward the river. The parking brake. Had she set the parking brake? Your mind worked over that single detail as if you could go back in time and set it yourself. The car began moving faster, crunching over gravel. No, 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 Harmony yelled. Then the car picked up speed and went over the bank, nose first, three feet over the bluff and down into the river. It didn't make a splash, but dipped like a soft ice cream cone in chocolate, then bobbed back up and tilted upright. For just a moment, you wondered if the car would float or maybe settle in shallow water. But then the front of the car began sinking, moving forward like someone easing down a hill. The rest was a blur, as hard to completely remember as it is impossible to forget. A rush of adrenalized flashes, running, splashing, screaming. Of the four of you, it made sense that you'd reach the car first. You'd grown up on that river. Four years of swimming lessons at Cannon Pool. Summer camp swims to Shark Island. You splashed over slippery rocks, current tugging at your clothes, harmony screaming behind you, the car drifting, pointed down like a sinking ship, the hood going under, and river water at the windshield by the time you got to the passenger window, which harmony had left half open so she could hear if her baby cried. Morton was in the back seat. Harmony had locked the door. The water was above your waist. You could just get your arms through the window, but you couldn't reach him. Morton, come here. Your feet moved along the rocks with the car, the river at your chest now. He was wide awake, chewing his pacifier as water swirled around his feet. He stared at you and all was lost until he suddenly crawled across the wet back seat and into your arms. Otherwise, you can't even think of the otherwise, even now. You got his little head sideways through the open car window, scraping it on both sides, and only then did he start crying. The rest of his body slid through like a mocking version of birth itself. You held him against your chest, both of your heads out of water, as you walked back toward the shore. You would end up having three of your own, Jerome, Aaron, and thankless Amber. But no child ever felt better against your body than that one. You moved slowly back toward shore, looking once more over your shoulder. The top of the car lurched forward, water rushing through that open window, and then it went under, bubbles rising everywhere. The shape of the car on the surface of the water for just a moment, like dirt on a grave. Harmony had reached you by then. Oh my God, Morton. And even though she was shaking, you handed her child over. Patrick was at her side. Holy shit, thank you. And only then did you look back to shore. It's not like you expected Joey to save the kid, but something about him, standing alone on the shore, clothes completely dry, told you everything you'd ever need to know.
I love, love that move forward in time. I love yeah. everything about it. But. I, I, I love uh, call Joe before you blow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, I think I think I have questions from people. Yeah, not that you're not people. I'm kind of a person. Yeah. So, uh, Christy has a mic, and if you would like to ask a question, please please raise your hand, and we'll get, get out there to to get, to get the mic to you. Even if you're upstairs, I can find you. It might take me a minute. There are people upstairs. Oh my God. The Bing is full. This is the best part of the evening: is the questions that we get to stump the authors with. Here we go. Jess, you have a bass player's hands. Bass player's hands? Yes. Do you, oh, do you wow. play music? Uh, I do not play music. Um, I, I'm done. I'm trying to teach myself the song T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens on the piano, because it's only 58 seconds, and I have 14 seconds so far. So um, <laughs> I also have piano playing hands, and my family is so musical. Uh, some of my family. Um, but every time I sing, my son says, can you not hear that? Um, so, uh, and I, I did play trumpet in um, my junior high school band. And I kind of want to start a band of horrible musicians called Fourth Chair. Um, <laughs> like if that's the furthest you ever got in band. So, if anyone wants to join Fourth Chair, it's pretty easy. When you were writing the short story you just read to us, was there a point in time when you made a decision as to how it would end one way or the other? That's a good question. It's, hard, it's sometimes hard to remember all the pieces that go into those stories. This one was um, those summer stories for the spokesman or theme, so it was supposed to be about the river. And so I knew I wanted something to happen at the river. Um, uh, I wanted, Geno's had just closed and I wanted to write about Geno's. I wanted to write about that period. Often it's like five or six ideas that are all coming down from the sky like snowflakes and they all kind of cohere. Um, and I, I remember, I love tonal shifts. I love when you're laughing and all of a sudden you're terrified what's going to happen to, to poor Sporton. And, um, and so I realized that, um, that I had this, this opportunity to create, you know, this tension at the end of what was a funny story. I think the thing that surprised me the most was, as Sean said, that leap forward in time. Um, as writers, we admire things like that, the way um, fiction is a really temporal art. The, the movement, the passage of time can create um, uh, resonance and emotional connection in ways that often surprise the writer. And so um, realizing that Joseph J. McCune was now, um, you know, the kind of lawyer who advertised on a bus bench, um, you know, it, I, I was able to, to, to sort of create this this bridge between the beginning and the end. Um, but no, I, I, I didn't really know how all the pieces would fit together. Um, you know, you write one draft and then, and then all of a sudden you think, well, I gotta put somebody in danger and so then you create Harmony and now he's gotta meet Harmony and um, what's she doing in the car and you know, did Pinto windows go down like that? And um, you know, you're, you're just doing all this research, trying to figure every, uh, trying to figure all the pieces out. But I think, 
I, I knew I had that story when, um, when I went to that flashback and came back because the story picks up pace the same way that Pinto does. It just goes um, and when you And that, as a writer, makes you feel really pleased when form and theme kind of connect like that. All the way up here in the second row, second balcony. Hi, do you suppose you might write another nonfiction book at some point, and what might it yeah. be about? Might I write another nonfiction book? If I say yes, then everyone will approach me afterward and say, I need you to write a book about my uncle. So, um, <laughs> um, I thought for a while I might write a nonfiction book about the Wobblies and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn because that was so interesting to me. Um, but in the end, I wrote a novel. Uh, but, uh, but it did remind me of how much I love writing nonfiction. And so I would love to if I found the right subject. Unfortunately, because um, you know my first nonfiction book was about Ruby Ridge and Randy Weaver, I get a lot of, you know, emails and letters from people saying like, I haven't paid my taxes in four years, write a book about me, you know, and um, uh, quite uninterested. So, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love, I'd love, and I, you know, I really miss the, the sense of purpose of journalism and especially in the world we're in now. And, you know, I, I do encourage you to support local journalism because, um, you know, besides being a training ground for probably America's greatest writers, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the yeah, two of them. <laughs> it's, um, it's also just a, just, I mean, it's so necessary in our democracy right now. And um, so there's a part of me that every once in a while gets, you know, wants to do something with that kind of purpose again. So, but then the lazy part of me says, just make some stuff up again. So. <laughs> And it's a bigger part, it turns out. <laughs> After all these beautiful years of writing, I'm up here in the second row. Oh, up there. Up yes. But whatever. I just wonder if there was a time when you contemplated leaving Spokane. And well, if so, where would you have gone? Was there a time when I contemplated leaving Spokane? Yes. Um, uh, yesterday, I guess. Um, <laughs> this morning, um, about ten minutes before I came out. Um, um, I I want uh, now Spokane can be the place I return to. I can go and come back, and I do that in fiction, and it's sort of how I want things to be. But yes, when I was a young writer, every time I wasn't reviewed in the New York Times, which was every time. Um, <laughs> I would curse my my grandfather for settling here, and um, you know, yell at my wife, "We've got to move to New York right now!" And she would pull up the real estate listings, and I would say, "Okay, maybe right, not right now." Um, but yeah, I wanted to go to L.A. or New York. I thought I couldn't really make a career. Um, the the realization that the place you're from. Uh, is every bit as literary as those places, and maybe more so, was one that took a while to dawn on me. But I think at least for the last 10 years, um, I 
have such a love affair with this place and I appreciate it in ways that I didn't when I was younger. I think if I had been one of those people who left and then came back, but um, because uh, you know, I worked at this newspaper and then you know, went to school at Eastern. In fact, I've never been out of the county. Um, no, I have. Um, uh, I, I think it just took me longer to appreciate what an amazing place it is. And now, um, it's like family to me. Like, if somebody runs it down, I will defend it, its honor. But if people start praising it too much, I will um, go the other direction, too. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, I, 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 I think there were times when I thought it would be easier on my career. You know, you, you don't win an award and the writer who wins it. I remember one year, the, the five finals for the National Book Award all lived like in an eight block radius of Brooklyn. And you just thought, I gotta move there, you know? Um, but two years later, um, two writers from Spokane were finalists and one, and, and two, uh, three were finalists and two won. Um, causing the uh, head of the National Book Foundation to say that there were two poles in literary America, New York and Spokane, Washington. So. But. Okay, we have a final question from up here in the balcony, and I'll come back downstairs. Hi there, Pollyann Burge. I just want to thank you all for being, both you and Sean, for being such advocates for Spokane and also working class folks. And also, a Northwest Patches in Spokane Review. I just came back from Portland, living there for 25 years. I'm a Spokaneite, but oh my God, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for what you do. No, seriously, this is amazing. My question is, any news about when one of your books might be a film? I can see like Cold Millions and like the Coen Brothers, so. Yeah. Um, uh, the. The film business is a little fickle, it turns out. Um, um, no, it's great, actually. Uh, it's, um, the uh, Beautiful Ruins is still in some level of pre-development, which means somebody owns it, and uh, the last I heard, they're, um, the people who made the, uh, um, the uh, Lena Ferrante um, miniseries on HBO uh, have some interest, so that would be cool. Um, it's had amazing um, filmmakers sort of behind it. It, it, it can take years and years. Um, the Cold Millions has had some TV interest as a possible TV show, but the thing I'm the most excited about, the last time I was in New York, I met with a librettist and composer who were writing a Cold Millions opera for the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Um, yeah. So, and I, I have to warn you, that might not happen either. Um, but uh, when I was growing up at East Valley High School, I would say to myself, opera, I should. I'm gonna finish off this bong hit, and then, and then I'm gonna practice my nunchucks, and then I'm gonna watch an opera. So it so, seems so unlikely, um, but I think there's a kind of Les Mis quality to, um, uh, to the cold millions that uh, it would be really cool. And so it was so cool meeting with this Pulitzer Prize winning composer and librettist and having them say, do you think we could get a Model T on stage? And I'm like, yeah, I think you could. <laughs> so. um, and some of the other books are still in some, someone owns them and you know they're constantly, trying to write a script, trying to get something made. But I, 
I've come to the place where if I'm the last word on my stories, I'll be so happy. Um, I feel like I do them way better than anyone else could. So uh, <laughs> if they don't make the movies, I'll be just fine. Yes. Uh, there's a theme that you touch upon from time to time in your novels, and uh, I kind of think you're holding back. And I wonder if you could tell us how you really feel about Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I love Seattle. I really do. I've, um, uh, as I wrote about in, in We Live in Water, for a while I rented a houseboat on Lake Union just so I could pretend I lived in Seattle. So I do love Seattle, but I love teasing it. I love that teasing back and forth. Um, I mean, Spokane also has it gets knocked in the cold millions. But I do, I do love, um, you know, that uh, that in in the cold millions, one of the characters refers to Seattle as a shithole. So that, uh, um, but it, it really is just kind of a teasing. You know, um, I really do sort of love that city, but but I will never admit it on the page. So. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks so much. All right. So before you guys leave, we should take a photo with everybody. Go right, so now you're right here. And I'll Can you guys? <laughs> Wait, are we doing this way? Oh, we're this way. Okay. Oh, all right.